Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I'm Liv, and I'm here to give you a casual and colloquial take on ancient Greece. In this case, the myths in Let's Talk About Myths, baby is only general, because today's episode is a little different. Let's say it's Let's Talk About Greek History, baby? That's right. As a short break before we delve too deep into the Trojan War, we're going to veer off in a different direction. Ideally, this will become something I do more often. See, I want to give you all a bit of a grounding in the reality of the ancient Greek world, compared to what we know from the myths alone. The ancient Greeks were fucking incredible, far beyond what they gave us in their mythology. So, like I said, today we're covering some reality. That reality comes from contemporary ancient Greek history. That is, history as it was recorded in the time of the ancient Greeks. Specifically, the man who is famously one of the first historians, Herodotus. Herodotus is often referred to as the father of history. It was Cicero, the famous Roman orator, who gave him that name first. Herodotus was an ancient Greek from the 5th century BCE who took it upon himself to recount the history of his people and the surrounding areas. He set out and wandered the Greek world in Asia Minor and into Africa. He interviewed people and set out the history of the entire Mediterranean region. For this episode, I've been reading from the landmark Herodotus, The Histories. It's edited by Robert B. Strassler, translated by Andrea L. Purvis. This translation recounts Herodotus's reason for writing down the history of the region as, quote, so that human events do not fade with time. May the great and wonderful deeds, some brought forth by the Hellenes, others by the barbarians, not go unsung. This is episode 24. They're not so awful after all. Ancient Greek women in Herodotus' history. Herodotus was born in Halicarnassus, which was in the Persian Empire at the time, 
what we now call Turkey, though it's usually referred to as Asia Minor, as that was its ancient name. Herodotus lived during the 5th century BCE, and while he was born in the Persian Empire, Herodotus was Greek, and as such, he referred to non-Greeks as barbarians. I've mentioned this before, but the etymology of the word barbarian is fascinating, and I think that even though I had an ancient, pun intended, Greek history prof who should have retired at least five years before he taught me, his description of the word's origins may be all I remember about him. The Greek word for barbarian was barbaros. It meant anyone that was not a citizen of Greece, or the city-states that made up Greece at the time, collectively what they called Hellas. A barbarian was anyone who was not a Hellene, as they would call themselves then. The word barbaros was actually the antonym to polities, which just meant citizen. That word comes from polis, which means city. And that's why there were so many ancient cities that end in polis. But I digress. The word barbaros was found as far back as the Linear B tablets of Mycenaean Bronze Age Greece. For reference, the Bronze Age for that region is considered in and around 3000 to 2000 BCE. That's how long ago the ancient Greeks had interacted with foreigners and thought about it well enough to come up with a word for them and to write it down. It was an automatopoeic word because Greeks heard languages other than their native Greek to be gibberish. They described those people's languages as sounding like they were saying bar bar, and they created the word from there. It's just fascinating to me that a word we use today, barbarian, to mean someone that's uncivilized or primitive is simply a word that meant the other. It's so indicative of the English world that people who are simply not us would be uncivilized. In any case, that's just a little rambly aside into etymology of our words because I fucking love that shit too. Back to our new friend, Herodotus. Herodotus' surviving work is called The Histories. The Histories is the oldest surviving work of complete prose. Take that in the oldest surviving work of prose. It's 2,500 years old, epically long, and it survived long enough to be translated from ancient Greek and still be used and referenced today. The title comes from the Greek word for inquiry, which is history with an I-E, or historia. This is where the English get the word history. So, sorry to break it to my mom and feminist of her time, but but it wasn't named with any specific masculine word choice when it comes to English. Just an unfortunate coincidence that helped spawn the word her story. As I mentioned at the top, Herodotus is considered the father of history. He's the first recorded historian. Historian in the way that he wasn't just talking about myths and legends, because that was basically all that was being written down in his time. No, he was actually researching recent human history. He recorded the history, he looked for the causes of the wars between the Persians and the Greeks, and he was critical of both sides when it was warranted. Later historians of ancient Rome and later would recount other historians that existed before Herodotus that we don't have surviving records of, but they're described as very different from the way he worked. So we know with some certainty that Herodotus was the first of his type, the first to delve so deeply into history and in such a journalistic way. 
to research and interview and travel around to find stories of the past. Herodotus begins the histories by focusing on women, women in myth versus women in history, and how this impacted the real world. Herodotus recounts the different accounts of how the many wars between the Greeks and the Persians began, because, as an FYI, there were many, many wars between the Greeks and the Persians over the centuries, small and big. They fought a lot. And in recounting this, Herodotus essentially describes myths of the Greeks themselves as reasons for these wars. The Persians, Herodotus says, claim that the Phoenicians are to blame for the beginning of the disputes. He says that after the Phoenicians settled in their land, they began voyaging out into the sea. They traveled many places and they brought back cargo from around the region, but particularly, Herodotus says that the Phoenicians went to Argos, and at Argos, many women from the kingdom came to see these foreigners and were hanging out around the ships in the harbor. Then the Phoenicians went after the women that had gathered. Many escaped, but some were captured by the Phoenicians and were brought back with them. One of these women from Argos, who was apparently captured and whisked away to Egypt by the Phoenicians, was a woman named Io. And with that simple explanation, Herodotus combines a famous Greek myth that would have been a story told around the Greek world, that of Zeus's kidnap of Io and her transport to Egypt where she's turned into a cow, with one of the proposed beginnings of the disputes between the Greeks and the Persians. Herodotus states simply that this is how the Persians say that Io got to Egypt, though the Greeks disagree. But Herodotus goes on. He says that the Persians say that after the subduction of Io, some Greeks then traveled to the port of Tyre, a city in Phoenicia, where they kidnapped a princess, the king's daughter, and they brought her to Crete. The princess's name, they say, was Europa. Another myth checked off. After this, Herodotus continues, the Persians say that the Greeks were responsible for yet another crime. The Greeks went to Colchis on some business, but when they were finished there, they abducted another king's daughter, this time a princess named Medea. In this case, that king sent a messenger demanding the return of his daughter, and the Greeks said that since they'd received nothing in response for the abduction of Io, that king would receive nothing in response for the abduction of Medea. And it went on. A generation after these events, Alexandros, the son of Priam in Troy, heard these stories and himself thought he deserved the chance to abduct a wife from Greece. Since no penalties had been paid in the other cases, why would it be any different here? And so Alexandros, or Alexander, who you'll remember by his other name of Paris, sailed to Sparta and abducted the queen there, Helen. Here the Greeks sent a messenger and demanded satisfaction for the kidnapping of the queen of Sparta, and here the response was that no one had received satisfaction for the abduction of Medea, and so again it went on. After the abduction of Helen, Herodotus recounts, the Persians say that the Greeks mustered a massive force and destroyed the kingdom of Priam. And this, the Persians say, was when they determined that it was clear the Greeks were their enemies. The Persians considered all the people of their region, Asia, or what we now consider the Middle East, 
to be an entity separate from the Hellenes, the Greeks, who had themselves been so barbaric in their responses and so quick to abduct women of Asia. So the Persians, he says, attribute their unending disputes and wars with the Greeks to originating in the sacking of Troy, the Trojan War. And so, Herodotus says, these are the stories told by the Persians for how it all began. But, he says, he doesn't plan to confirm these events or deny them. He simply says, this is what the Persians say. But it's not an accident that there's a human story behind the many abductions of women accounted for in Greek mythology. Herodotus makes this point to neither confirm or deny the truths of the myths his people know so well. Certainly by this time in Greek history, the people of Greece had formed their own thoughts on the validity of the myths. It wasn't all taken as literal, just as the Bible isn't all literal to Christians today. Their stories meant to affirm the power and control of the gods, which is something they wouldn't ever deny. In this case, the information serves to cement the hostilities between the Greeks and the Persians in history and myth. To say that there have been these hostilities between the neighbors for as far back as anyone can imagine. Were these events perpetrated by the gods or by the Persians? Who's to say? But Herodotus is telling us that, regardless, that's how ingrained and unending the wars with the Persians are. And the question of the hour when it comes to this podcast... How did Herodotus treat the stories of real women? Unlike in most myths, there are a few mortal women with power and agency in Herodotus' account of the history of the Greeks and the people from Asia Minor. This even includes women more powerful than their husbands, if they even had them, which is, for obvious reasons, my favorite. So, in this episode, I present you with some badass females from history rather than myth. Herodotus tells a story of a king of Sardis, Condales. Condales was a Heraclid, according to Herodotus, a descendant of Heracles. Interestingly, this line of people, the Heraclids, were supposed to be descendants of Heracles via a tryst with a slave woman. This is interesting to me because they were kings of a region and famous for being Heraclids, even though the woman was a slave, which is kind of cool beyond the awfulness. So, by way of an explanation of how he came to be king and who he is descended from, which is quite a long and wordy list, let me tell you, Herodotus tells the story of Condales. Because Condales was the king of Sardis, he was the ruler of the Lydian people, and Condales fell in love and married a woman. Though she is arguably the most important person in this story, she doesn't actually have a name in Herodotus' account. She is Condales' wife. And Condales loved her and thought her the most beautiful woman in the world. Condales was a man, though, and a man back then when a woman was straight-up property, and so he wanted to show off his property. His longtime bodyguard was a man named Gyges. Condales was so psyched that he had this hot wife, and he wanted to show her off to his bro Gyges. There was only one problem. Showing your naked wife to another person was frowned upon. Weird, I know. But still, Candales was hell-bent on showing off his hot wife to Gyges. He told Gyges that he'd worked out a way of doing this stealthily, without her finding out, which isn't weird at all. They made a plan. 
Gyges would hide in a corner, and when the wife came in to strip down, Gyges would watch. When she turned around, he'd sneak out. Easy peasy, what could go wrong? Well, obviously, Candales' wife noticed Gyges looking, but she was smart. She realized she had the upper hand, and so she didn't mention it to Candales or to Gyges. Instead, she held on to this information, waiting for when it would benefit her. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. In the morning, Candales' wife came up with a plan. She summoned Gyges to her room where she could speak to him alone. There, she told him that she'd seen what he'd done. And I should say that it wasn't just frowned upon to see someone naked who wasn't your spouse. It was legit bad, like punishable bad. So Candales' wife told Gyges that she knew what he'd done and she told him he had a choice. Would he sacrifice himself or would he kill the king, Candales? The crime he'd committed by creepily peeping on her could result in death. So it was him or the king. Still, it was Candales' wife making this ultimatum. It was she who decided that only one man could survive because she would only allow one man to have seen her naked. And so she told Gyges if he chose to kill her husband, he would take over both as her husband and as the king of Sardis and ruler of the Lydian kingdom. Gyges tried to get himself out of this pickle, but he just couldn't. He's stuck. He has to decide. And so he decides that he chooses himself over his boss. He asks Candales' wife how they'll kill her husband, and she has a plan. When Candales goes to sleep that night, Gyges sneaks into the bedroom, the same place where he had seen Candales' wife naked, and he kills the king in his sleep. And with that, he's taken over Candales' wife, now Gyges' wife, and the kingdom. When news breaks in the morning, the people of Lydia aren't thrilled. This is a bit more upheaval than they're willing to deal with. But they come to a deal with Gyges. If the oracle pronounces him king, then he'll be king. So he's off to see the oracle. 
There he is indeed declared king, but the oracle adds a caveat. Gyges would be king, but retribution would come from the Heraclids on the fourth descendant of Gyges. That was so far away, no one concerned themselves, and that's a story for another time. Candalis' wife isn't the only badass female that Herodotus mentions in the histories. In fact, there are a few more, and he actually knows their names. While describing the fleet of Xerxes, ruler of the Persians during one of the Greco-Persian wars, and yes, that Xerxes, from the movie 300 fame. While describing his fleet, Herodotus makes a point of saying that he doesn't need to be mentioning the subordinate commanders because he's not compelled to, but that he will mention one, because he, quote, finds it absolutely amazing that she, a woman, should join the expedition against Hellas. Her name is Artemisia. After her husband died, Artemisia took control of the tyranny, which was the name for the rulers of those regions at the time. It didn't have the same connotation it does now, though bad ones did give it that connotation, but for now, it's just a king. Regardless, Artemisia took control. And even though she had a son of military age, she herself went to war when she didn't even have to. According to Herodotus, this was because she was, quote, roused by her own determination and courage. Honestly, a huge thrill of this is simply the way that Herodotus is speaking about the women. He's impressed by them. He's not surprised that they're badass. It's not being treated as if it's impossible or if it's just this one woman who's able to be like this. He's just impressed because she's fucking brave. Artemisia was technically Greek. She was from city-states that were considered Greek, though there was no unified country at this time. There was the somewhat unified culture, that of Hellas, but they weren't all allies. And so Artemisia fought on the side of Xerxes against Greece. She commanded men from four cities in the region and brought five ships on the expedition against Greece. Herodotus also says that of the entire navy of Xerxes' Persians, Artemisia's ships were the most impressive after those of the Sidonians, because, you know, no one's perfect. And he says, quote, of all the counsel offered to the king by the allies, hers was the best. Later, before the famous Battle of Salamis between the Greeks and the Persians, Xerxes goes to all of his commanders for their advice on whether or not he should fight a naval battle. All his commanders tell him, yes, they should fight a naval battle, they'll be successful. Except Artemisia, who says, no, you don't need to. The Greeks are more powerful on the sea, and if you keep it to land, you'll definitely win and definitely be able to raise Athens to the ground, which is what you want. The Greeks were outnumbered, by a lot. And Xerxes sided with all of his other commanders. And the Greeks won, even though they were severely outnumbered. Herodotus provides the story of another badass queen from the east, Tamiris. A major player in the histories is Cyrus of Persia. He was the founder of the first Persian empire and historically is crazy important. He's better known as Cyrus the Great. Herodotus spends a lot of time detailing Cyrus's conquests throughout Asia Minor, including on a people called the Masagetai. They lived in what is now Kazakhstan. 
After Cyrus conquered Babylon, he moved on to the Massagetae, who were ruled by a woman named Tomiris. A familiar story, Tomiris's husband had died, and so she'd taken over. Cyrus sent a message to Tomiris saying that he wanted to court her and make her his wife. But she was a smart lady, and she realized this was all a pretext for him to take over her people. She said, fuck that. Having been brutally rebuffed, Cyrus arrived with a force. After some strategizing, they decided to attack the Massagetae using a pretty rude form of trickery. They left a trap in the form of an apparently abandoned camp. They left out all the luxuries and wine that they had, and the Massagetae fell for it, taking full advantage of the sweet spread. The Persians then attacked and managed to destroy one-third of the Massagetae force. It was pretty bad. They even captured Tamiris's son in the process. But Tamiris wasn't giving up. She called Cyrus out for playing pretty unfairly and challenged him to another battle. In this battle, Tamiris and her Massagetae forces kicked ass and the Persians were defeated. By some accounts, including Herodotus, Cyrus himself was killed in this battle. He'd reigned for 29 years before meeting his end battling a woman. There are other accounts that say he didn't die during this battle, so it's hard to say, but this version is pretty fun. Our final fun female of Herodotus's history is Xerxes's wife. Yes, again, Xerxes of 300 fame, ruler of Persia and guy who didn't look nearly as crazy as he did in that movie. But first, an anecdote to get the taste of Xerxes' wife, a mastress. The Persians had a practice of burying people alive. Yeah, you heard that right. According to Herodotus, this was a thing they sometimes did. Honestly, I've been reading this, and I can't quite figure out the purpose of the burying alive, but the context they give is an example of the Persians arriving in a new area, learning it was called the Nine Roads, and consequently burying alive many children of the local people. And a mistress, well, when she got old, she would present young people to be buried alive as a gift to the Persian god of the netherworld in place of herself. Apparently, she had 14 children of prominent men killed that way. Because, by my interpretation, she felt that it would keep her young. Where our real story begins, the Persians have retreated to Sardis during one of the Greco-Persian Wars. It doesn't matter which, so I haven't tried to figure it out. The point is, Xerxes is in Sardis, and he's just fallen in love with his brother Masistes' wife. As you do. But see... Xerxes just couldn't get his brother's wife to go for him. And according to Herodotus, it was out of respect for his brother that he didn't take the wife by force. How very, very nice of him. Xerxes determined that he was most likely to convince this woman to be with him if he married her daughter with Mesistes and his son, Darius. He then moved on to the city of Susa, where he brought into his home Darius's new wife, Artainti. It was then that he decided that he didn't actually love Mesistes' wife. He really loved Artainti, his own son's new wife. She was more easily convinced than her mother, and so she became Xerxes' mistress. But see, Xerxes was also married to the queen, a mistress, 
and one day a mistress wove for Xerxes a fancy robe, which was apparently very impressive. He was excited about his new robe, and he put it on, and then he went to see his mistress. In his excitement, he told her to ask him for whatever she wanted, and he would give it to her. Because this is the ancient world where crazy and bad things happen, Artainty asked Xerxes for the robe. He tried to convince her to take something else, but she wouldn't budge, so he gave her the robe. Of course, this meant that a mistress quickly found out about her husband's extracurriculars. A mistress didn't blame Artainty, but before you go thinking, how very refreshing, she's an O'Hara, I'll tell you that she didn't blame Artainty because she was sure that it was Mrs. Steez's wife, Artainty's mother, who arranged the whole thing. So instead, she planned punishment for her. There was a big party upcoming, a banquet. At this banquet, a mistress asked Xerxes for a gift. She wanted Mesistes's wife. Xerxes figured out why she was asking, and he tried to get out of it. But he couldn't for whatever reason, so he too made a plan. Xerxes went to his brother and told him, You know, you don't really need your current wife. In fact, I don't think you want her at all. Here, why don't I give you my daughter instead? How do you like that? Mesistes didn't go for it. He told Xerxes that, you know, he loved his wife and they have kids together and he doesn't want to marry anyone else. And besides, didn't you just marry off our children? Xerxes wasn't thrilled to be told no, and he kind of lost it. He told Mesistes that, fine, now he couldn't have his daughter to marry and he couldn't have his wife either. So there. While all this was happening, a mistress took Mesistes' wife and mutilated her. Like, really bad and really gross. And then she sent her home. Mesistes went straight home after his super weird conversation with his brother, and so he quickly saw what had been done to his wife. They took their children, and they tried to flee to the province where Mesistes was governor. But they didn't make it, because Xerxes pursued them with his army, and he killed Mesistes and his whole family. And, well... That's it for a mistress, because not all women from history are better than their mythological counterparts. Some are still awful when their husbands are gross, cheating weirdos who marry off people and fall in love with sisters-in-laws and then daughters-in-law. And thus ends the first episode where I recount some truth rather than myth. How'd it go? Interesting? I hope so because ideally I'll pepper in some historical stories along with the standard mythological fare. I have a quick admission for you guys. I haven't seen the sequel to 300, because it looked like a lot. Too much. I wondered briefly whether they'd made up a character entirely, though, from the trailers, because the main antagonist in the movies, according to what I saw, seemed to be a woman. I thought, that's cool, but unlike the original 300, this one must be entirely fictional, because what woman would have led an army like that? Well... As I just learned on Wikipedia while looking into Artemisia, the female antagonist in the 300 sequel is Artemisia, and so clearly I should watch that movie. Which brings me to a quick reminder. This month, I will be recording a special podcast episode only for Patreon patrons. I'll be watching 300 for the hundredth time, and I'll be researching the truth of the Battle of Thermopylae. I even plan to finally getting around to reading some Thucydides who wrote about the history of the Peloponnesian War, and I'll do that so you don't have to. The episode will go into detail about what is and what is not accurate about the movie, including Spartan culture and just how crazy the Persians actually were. There will be mega spoilers for 300, obviously, 
but that movie's been out for ages and it's great and has a load of super hot half-naked men, so if you haven't seen it yet, what are you waiting for? As I mentioned last week, the podcast will be leaving SoundCloud very soon, probably in the next week or so, a week or so being from when I'm recording this, of course, which is Monday, February 5th. There are so many other places you can listen to the podcast and subscribe so that you don't miss anything, so please, if you listen on SoundCloud, take a look at these other options. For you who don't listen on SoundCloud, if all goes as planned, you won't even notice that I did anything, knock on wood. Once again, thank you all for listening. As always, you can find me everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., etc. It's Myths Baby, basically just everywhere. Patreon too, in case you're interested in learning about the Battle of Thermopylae and the 300 Spartans. You're all magnificent, shining people. I'm Liv, and I absolutely love this shit. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.